Hello and welcome to Three Security Buddies, episode two. I am your host Matthias Bruti, and I'm joined by my co-host Paul Garrett. Howdy, Paul. How are you doing, Matthias? I'm doing well. Um, how's your weekend so far? Oh, not bad. Just standard errands. Awesome. And Robert Clark. Hello, mate. <laughs> hey, mate. How's it going? I'm doing fine. I, I actually literally Googled last night how, how to properly say hi in British English. And mate was what it came up with. According according to the BCC, hello, mate was one of the options. I was like, I have never heard that when I was in London, but I, I'm going to run with it. I'm going to believe the, B- so, the BCC. Does that mean for like next week you're going to do like, oi, governor, <laughs> something of that nature? Yeah. And when I searched for Texas, it was howdy, which that one I obviously know. And it's like, howdy, y'all. I'm like, okay, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I was like, that is very Texas and Southern in general. So yeah, I believe that. Um, I'm pretty sure there's way more British ways of saying hi, Robert, but you know, I will slowly learn them. That is kind of you. And when I learn enough, I can move to the Falklands. Um, <laughs> We're starting off spicy then, that's good. <laughs> it's Saturday and it's cloudy, we might as well add some spicy to it. So, uh, you know, during the week, I was actually, if I didn't have enough of, you know, being a Signal user and uh, always remember about the Celebrite hack lately, I actually ran into another blog post by them that I, actually I, I did found this one very interesting, but I, I thought it continued to be in the line of like highly controversial uh, posts that we have seen from them coming up. And, and this time is they actually uh, ran some Instagram ads the interesting bits of it is they actually use the data points out of uh, that Instagram give you to target your audience and they literally introduce them in the ads. So if you actually go and take a look at the website and the blog post, it's basically saying, hey, hello, like, you know, uh, this ad is for you because you have like this, you like these things, you live in this area, et cetera, et cetera. So very, very like creepy. Uh, I mean, for most people that actually don't realize that that's how you get targeted ads by, you know, having uh, targeted information on you. Obviously, Instagram immediately canceled the ad and, and pulled it back. But I totally get it what they're doing, right? Like it goes to show why having privacy regardless, regardless of encryption, you know, why, 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 why are some of the benefits of signal of like, hey, we're not going to collect metadata on you. We're not going to target you with ads. We, you know, like the whole idea about what privacy is important. Uh, I also can understand why Instagram cancel it, maybe from a terms or service or some some BS like that. But I, I just I just thought it was interesting. I, I wonder if they sh- I wonder if canceling actually brought up even more of a of news to them. But anyways, I, I thought it was interesting to share yet another interesting blog from out of Signal. Uh, and this time targeting privacy and, and piecing somebody else uh, somebody else to actually make your point. It's interesting because I don't think, yeah, so it, I, I, so the Signal platform is very interesting. Recently they had a, another another legal request for, for logs and any information that was crossing federal boundaries and some other bits and pieces. And, you know, they quite gleefully reported uh, that they sent their logs, which just contained... I think it's a UID for um, for a user, and the last time that they were last time that they connected to uh, Signal servers, and I I was I was amused by the fact that they didn't even convert it into real time. They just gave it as Unix Epoch just to just to be annoying, and send them as printouts, which was which was funny. But no, um, I saw this too, and like the ads are pretty interesting. So there's you know one of the examples is. Um, you got you got this ad because you're a GP, so that's a, a general practitioner, right? A, a doctor with a, a master's in art history who's also divorced. This ad used your location to see you're in London. Your online activity shows that you've been getting into boxing, and you're probably getting there on your new motorcycle. And that that's kind of scary when people see that. And it's interesting because I think most people. Most people who aren't heavily into technology but consume the web and social media a lot, you know, they'll see um, they'll see ads. They know they're being tracked. Um, my personal bugbear with some of this stuff, if I get off my uh, privacy high horse, which is a, a valid one to be on, but if I get off my privacy high horse just to look at my usability, 
I wish this stuff was slightly better and they would actually know when I've bought the thing and stop telling me to like go buy more of them. Like I, I'm into headphones. I have lots of headphones. I get some somewhat frequently. Um, so it's okay for advertise those, but there's like random stuff that I'll buy one thing of off Amazon or somewhere else. And then uh, I'll be getting harassed about that on Facebook and you know other places for a long time. Um, anyway, I diverge slightly. Uh, from the privacy point of view, I think what this does is really highlights to people, um, as you said, how creepy this is. But I guess, and I'll throw this over to Paul, like what was the value to Signal or to Signal's user base specifically, do you think, by them choosing to run these ads? I mean, that's certainly an interesting question. Uh, my first reaction to that would be that I suspect that the value was largely that of uh, marketing to them. Like they want people to understand, like Signal is a service, but it is also like a larger, they consider themselves part of a larger movement, or at least that's my belief. Within that larger movement, they very deeply believe that like privacy is a fundamental right and that people don't understand what they have chosen to surrender. So an ad like this is very useful in terms of like showing people what you have actually surrendered that you maybe didn't realize you had. Uh, it is absolutely a troll level stunt in a lot of ways. And there's no question in my mind that they fully expected to be banned uh, for doing this. But that doesn't mean it's not useful, right? Like uh, you and I and Matthias live and breathe things that are related to this. Like we're not an ad tech, but we work in security and therefore their privacy overlaps are relatively significant. And in that world, Honestly, I forget fairly often because it's not, I don't have my face rubbed in it all the time, but I, I forget re relatively frequently just how granular this data really is. Uh, so I think there's value in that, even if it was in, in some ways intended as a stunt and in some ways intended as evangelism for their particular political platform. Well, I'm, a, I'm an Instagram user myself. Like I actually post my, you know, my lame attempt to do street photography and photography in general and and it's a, it was a even to myself it was a very interesting reminder of like oh yeah like this is how deeply targeted i am and when when i when i decided to use instagram i sort of accepted those things and i cautiously post thing I, I do not post pictures of my kids I, I mean, I, I do sometimes, but usually they're not, their face is not there. So they're like looking from the behind or it's far away that it almost blurry. But at the same time, like I get very targeted ads. Some of them are actually useful. I won't lie. But but deep down, I I know the privacy sacrifices that I have to make. And I agree with Paul. This is This is a marketing stunt. This is... This is a way of them saying, we're not like this. This is not about like the tinfoil hat people using Signal. This is a service and here the benefits and here the consequences of giving up those privacy rights. Um, I think it's a very interesting wake up call for people that do not think this day in and day out. Probably a lot of people not even gonna read it, but nevertheless, it might, it might sweat some into like these more mainstream websites and more mainstream discussions about it uh, of not so, you know, not so technical people reading. I, I really hope it makes it into like a normal newspaper so people get a, an understanding of, of the consequences. Uh, I, I talk to non-technical friends and they usually consider computer ads or, you know, social network ads, just like the ad that you will get in a magazine or, or, or in a newspaper. And I'm like, no, it's not like that. It's, com it's, it's way more intrusive. It's fine if you agree with it, but like the fact that people don't understand it, uh, it's interesting. And, and this blog, in my mind, bring this into the discussion because it's beneficial for them, like by all means. And I, I, I like it. I think it's, it's a very interesting way of saying, hey, we're not going to do anything illegal, but here are the consequences of sacrificing privacy, and here's the benefits of using a service like Signal, right? And that's it. So, here, um, so here's my, here's my question yeah. for you, just before we move along, because I think there's, there's an aspect we touched on a little bit. 
and you can always cut this out. We know the first, so I, I'm interested in why this ad got pulled so quickly. The first why is sure it broke terms of service or the broke a rule or it, I don't care about the first why. The second why is why was that in place in the first place? So why was it when they're clearly, you know, making their avenue, make, making making their um, revenue, sorry, from uh, from advertising just like anything else? Um, why was it important for Insta or whoever to pull this ad versus just letting it run and make money on their advertising stream just like anything else? Well, because I think the money that they will make is, is, is insignificant to the wake up reality that people, that normal users will get, because this is going to target everybody. So how would you feel if you're browsing through Instagram and all of a sudden you see an ad that basically tells you like your deepest secrets, you'll be like, holy moly, right? Like what is wrong here? You don't, you don't realize that when you see the perfect, in my case, like uh, I'm browsing for, you know, furniture for my house and all of a sudden see something very interesting, useful thing that it's a niche company, I'm like, oh, useful. I didn't know about it. And, and the normal user is not going to realize that he's getting a useful ad. But from the Instagram point of view, if you actually show them like exactly why they're getting a very useful advertisement, a lot of people are going to panic and they're going to say, holy shit, right? Like, this is not what I expected out of this relationship. And I, 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 in my humble opinion, like, it's not good for their business. And I, I mean, the hacker in me says, F you. The businessman in me says, okay, I understand why you pulled the ad. It's not only about the money, it's about the consequences of telling people how you make these ads happen. I mean, that's an interesting point. If, if that's the case, which obviously is speculation, but like, if that's the case, then it's very suggestive that organizations who depend or believe they depend on this targeting to make their money are also in some ways ashamed of it. Right? They believe that users do not actually want this and they don't want to reveal what they do and do not know. Uh, that, that's a very telling statement about their business model. Yeah, uh, I think that's a, that's a very interesting podcast on itself, potentially. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, sp I suppose that means we don't want to talk about the fact that Sensor Tower apparently is saying 96% of all iOS 14.5 users are opting out. Yeah, exactly my point, which I'm like, uh, off by default, great. That's that. That's what I. That's what I like. I don't have to educate the rest of my family to turn it off. So continue with Signal a little bit because this actually apparently could potentially have affected them. And the CocoaPods uh, trunk remote code execution uh, blog post that recently came out. Um, I, I have played with with CocoaPods a long time ago when I was first trying to do my like hello app in iOS, and that's how much I got far into iOS development. To be honest. But um, I, I know that it's used by, I mean, several thousands uh, iOS applications. Uh, so it's one of the mainstreams. Like um, somebody said that it's kind of like the uh, Homebridge version of iOS development when it comes to, to, to actually, you know, usefulness. Um, and apparently from what I was reading uh, about six years ago, somebody introduced a very sneaky way of potentially, you know, remote code execution uh, on the upload, was it upload track, upload, I don't remember a specific git command, but nevertheless, you know, not so obvious if you're not looking at it and it would have eventually allow you to get access to the trunk database. And uh, according to the blog post, some of the consequences were minimal, but others were like, hey, you could potentially have gotten access to all of the session keys, which those has some, you know, very obvious implications there. Uh, but the fact that this is used by Signal in their development or in potentially other very interesting apps that nation states have a potential need to target, it made it, it made, it made it sort of like something click to me. And, and, and I would really like to hear your opinions. I don't know who wants to take on this one, but I just thought it was a very interesting supply chain attack. And we've been talking about those for the last two episodes. Sure. So I guess I'll start here for a moment. Like one is. I, I would say that I struggle to, to uh, believe that this is like a bug door, right? This is a very classical kind of bug. It's almost certainly not malicious, which isn't to say it wasn't used for malicious purposes, but it's unlikely it was introduced in a malicious fashion. Like, as, as I understand the write-up, I believe it's effectively shell injection, right? Like, 
when you upload to the server, you have like there's a git command that's executed on the CLI and you can pass uh, dash dash upload pack or whatever it is that allows you to effectively execute a subshell. Uh, at which point, obviously, as we know, being able to pop a shell is generally the sort of thing you do not want to be able to have. Um, in terms of like what it means for supply chain, yeah, it's, it's the same sort of challenge and like it becomes the same, well, this becomes an interesting one because it's a compromise at the what pe many people would consider to be the authoritative, authoritative point, right? Which is the, the central repository. Uh, and so your threat model is different in some ways, and therefore some of the potential solutions are different. Uh, on episode zero, I know we talked a bit, and I guess in this one, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, some of the package transparency and other things that may or may not help with this. Uh, in this particular case, those could potentially have helped because you would have a signing chain before it went to the pod spec, except that you have the classical problem then if like, okay, you've solved that if and only if you have an out of band distribution of the keying material. If CocoaPods also distributed the keying material, then the same compromise that did that could add whatever keys it wants. So this is definitely a hard one and like it underscores two issues. Like one that package managers are a critical component of any ecosystem. And if you don't have one, as indeed Objective C did not, someone will grow one for you. Like the world needs them. Like that's what modern development looks like right now. And the second is we ultimately have no idea what to do about managing package managers. I think that's very true. I think a, 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 lot, of, a lot of intellectual hours are going to be spent trying to solve the package management problem. And I think we will end up with the, the classic XKCD skit of um, having yet another protocol and standard to try and unify all the things that came before. I think it, I'm not sure if there are any big standards bodies actually getting behind kind of common common solutions to some of these problems. But the problem, my, my major concern here is that the security industry in general will get very excited about this and will spend a lot of time, particularly rubbing crypto on all the stuff that's left of deployment, right? So they're going to do you know some, some signing, some validation, some attestation, all this other jazz. And the only thing we know in the industry to be universally true is that every single security thing we have done in the past has failed at some point. And yet, I still, to meet a major organization that can patch everything on time. I've yet to meet a major organization uh, that can keep all their users doing the right thing and inform them quickly when that thing needs to change. So while I, I'm all for in the investments that need to be made on the left side, I get worried that the security as an industry has this this desire to run towards the thing that is urgent versus the thing that is actually important. Um, because I think, you know, as I've said before, and it's a little bit controversial, we could probably, you know, get rid of half of the people that co currently call themselves InfoSec if we could just figure out how to realistically go and patch and upgrade and have like truly elastic systems in that dimension. So I think this is interesting. I think supply chain is going to keep coming up as a challenge. The specific um, command injection stuff that came up with CocoaPods, uh, yeah, that's ugly. It's easy to see how it got in. I agree with Paul. I don't think it was a bug door, which is to say a intentional mistaken code introduced by somebody for later fun and profit. Such things certainly do exist, but this doesn't seem to be one of them. Um, so there's no indication of that being the case. But yeah, the, these types of things are going to pop up all over the place. And I think what's going to be interesting is figuring out how we do the the kind of the validations for these types of stuff. Uh, I don't know what Objective-C support looks like for in, in tools like SEMGREP, but I think I think there's a lot that we can do as a community to come together and really start patterning out a lot of this stuff. And we're just getting tools like CodeQL and SEMGREP that allow us to pattern out some of these more abstract things, right? So we're not, no longer looking for specific strings, we're looking for specific sequences of actions in code. So yeah. I think the investment on the left side is interesting. I just worry that as a security industry, we're all going to pile into this for a while and we're going to declare it solved and it will probably get better. And then we'll realize there's some other terrible problem because you know we talked a couple of weeks ago about memory safety and how that's likely going to improve over time and reduce the number of just straight up buffer and heap overflows we see. That's great. 
Um, we talked about the fact that those are 70% of the perceived attack surface right now. Um, but I think the point came up that that's really just 70% of the observed attack surface and that the actual attack surface is much broader. It's just these things are low-hanging fruit. Well, I think GitHub has been doing a pretty good job, you know, when they acquired CodeQL and, and the GitHub research team, they, you know, by saying, hey, like, we will pay out interesting uh, CodeQL queries that actually find vulnerabilities across the open source world and sort of trying to do, I think, their their due diligence when it comes to paying back to the rest of the community. And obviously, I would like to see a lot more of that and from a lot of other companies and potentially general institutions. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and that, this sort of, you know, and I think Paul uh, did a little bit of an intro before about, you know, when it comes to signing, et cetera, like uh, recently Google and I think the, uh, uh, came out with, we co-signed for container image signing, which kind of deals a little bit with this problem. Um, so I, I read over it. I think it's a, an interesting, an interesting start. I wonder how truly effective it's going to be, how much you can actually take it away from their environment and standardize it and, and be used by, by, you know, third parties or somebody that is running their own sort of repositories, um, and, and, and how effective truly be, uh, the, the questions Paul that you had around like, okay, like, so how do we actually distribute the keys? How do you actually do deploy this at scale? All the things, all those things come up to my mind. But like, I don't know. I just felt that it was an interesting, uh, an interesting project that finally came to be, and it was one of those like, oh yeah, finally, that yeah, good, like yeah, we need this. Uh, let's let's make it a, a new standard. So, are you talking about Sigstore? So, Cosine leverages Sigstore. Yeah. So, so Sigstore came out of the collaboration between uh, Google Red Hat and the Linux Foundation. I think Luke Hines was one of the major contributors and drivers to that out of Red Hat. Um, you know, so this is um, going to be super helpful for, you know, helping developers sign their code and for users to verify them. And deals with threats like dependency confusion and some of those other things that we've seen recently, attacks on namespaces or on, on how uh, packet managers are doing types of resolution. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great thing. And to, to your initial point, you know, I, I expect we'll see we'll see it go far beyond just far beyond Google pretty quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the, the most interesting thing to me about the announcement uh, that uh, Matthias put in our show notes was that Google is using Cosign to sign their uh, their distroless base images, uh, which to me in many ways are actually a much more interesting security thing that I'd like to see people adopt, which is Docker containers that actually have the minimal set of surface area inside of them, right? Like they deal with, like, presumably they deal with like PID1 concerns and other things for you so that you can run just your minimal set of dependencies instead of running a like complete uh, Linux distro user land inside of it, no matter how stripped down it is. It's, if you can get it even less than a distro rate, like I'm happy to see that there are signatures because of course signatures attest to something. And if we can utilize those attestations in useful ways, great. Uh, but I'd like to just see people adopt more of the distro style things and actually minimize their Docker containers more uh, because I think that's certainly uh, past work experience has demonstrated to me that many of our problems come from having uh, teams that build Docker containers that are effectively an entire VM. Yeah, and it sort of defeats the purpose, right? Like, um, I when I when I when I talk to people and I see building Docker containers, one one of the the things that I usually tell them is like, hey, can you build from scratch? So you know, like uh, the best way to do security is not to introduce a security problem to begin with. So like the the less of a surf attack surface you have, that the easier it becomes for you at the end of the day. Uh, this is yet another thing that I like about languages like. Uh, Go or Rust in the sense that you can be you can build a statically compile binary and you can totally deploy it from from scratch, and it reduces the surface significantly. You know, it's almost impossible to get a shell um, unless you like you know you literally have to like build your shell as part of your exploit. Um, so I I I I completely agree with you, and uh, and to your point, you know, like this is actually further going to help those 
distributions to also be signed and and provide some sort of validation. So I don't know. I, I think this is like a win-win situation, and and I hope that it gets that sort of becomes a standard across the industry when it comes to like Docker containers or a, other type of. Absolutely. The only thing that's truly surprising to me is that they only have 16 million downloads a month right now. That is a small number, frankly. Is that only for like distroless? Is that I mean, I figure that it's, maybe they're huge. Not they're they're like the other containers have much much more bigger numbers. No doubt. Uh, in their in their blog post, they say 16, over 16 million uh, pulls per month for distroless, which is like that's just not a very big number. Is it over 16? I, like I, 160, and they just want to say over 16. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think they'd probably brag if the number was higher. I know, I, I know. have projects that have over 50 million downloads a month, and I'm, I'm nobody. Oh, now you're bragging. Great. <laughs> so uh, moving along, uh, I actually, uh, as, as I was sort of looking at the news, there were, there were, there were two things that actually caught my attention, two interesting hacks. Obviously, the, the T1 one, uh, when I read like somebody hacking a Tesla from a drone with a zero-click vulnerability, I mean, I was just like, oh, my God, this is cool. Like, it's just amazing. Like, I don't even want to know the details. I just want to, like, not think about it and say, like, yeah, somebody can, like, be driving a drone. You're on the highway, and they want to get rid of you, and they just, like, one-click hack you. I mean, it's just, that, that is very uh, Mission Impossible slash, like, James Bond's kind of attack. <laughs> and I just, I was like, okay, cool. Like, I applaud you. Like, I, I want to listen to your presentation. If, if, we, if there was no COVID and I could travel, and you know, mingle with another thousand people in the same room. Uh, I, I think that will. This is just an amazing presentation that I would applaud like for twenty minutes nonstop. Yeah, it's 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 a really impressive stunt hack, right? Like clearly, as as uh, I was saying to Rob a little bit before we started the show, like there's no reason why this hack needed a drone, but the drone made it obviously much cooler. So like, why why not use a drone? So like. Respect to the showmanship of the people who, who did this hack. And obviously they have real skill as well since they did perform a, a true hack in addition to operating the drone. This is reverse um, engineering experience, like hacking experience, showmanship experience, uh, even like, uh, uh, you know, you know, I don't really agree with naming vulnerabilities, but like, okay, you went far and beyond and use a drone. So like, I'll, I'll allow you to name this one. Like this is, this is good enough that you can name it. Like usually I'm against it. Like, I just think it's like I, PR, but... This one is cool enough that I'm like, okay, I can deal with it. You're totally right about naming. On the other hand, you guys saw the XM vulnerabilities uh, in the last week, right? Uh, so there, there was a, a new set of XM vulnerabilities disclosed. There uh, were 21 separate vulnerabilities, most of them quite critical. Uh, 12 out of the 21 were memory and safety, since you know I have to be on brand. Uh, they named those set of vulnerabilities 21 nails. And the reason they named it that way is because they mean 21 more nails in the coffin of Exxon. And I find that naming just amazing. I love it. Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. Like, okay, here's my rant. Um, <laughs> I think that most namings are very cool and, and people are trying to be funny and snappy. I mean, I, I totally get it. At the same time, I'm like, really? Like, do we really need to get into this in the industry by naming vulnerabilities? And, and the problem that I see now is that when you have a critical vulnerability, like people are starting to feel the need of naming it to sort of like be reminded in history. When I think the three of you guys, I mean, the three of us are old enough to remember that we, when we were, when we were talking about uh, popping a shell and we literally had to like, you know, remember the name of the uh, Microsoft uh, patch <laughs> in order to actually call the vulnerability. They were not naming vulnerabilities. It was just, okay, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and I don't know, uh, maybe I'm just an old fart and, and, I, and I need to like rant about what the new kids are doing nowadays. Uh, well, I certainly wouldn't argue the, the, the question of you being an old fart, but one of the things I, I would maybe push back on slightly I, I reacted the same way, and the the first first one I can really think of is Heartbleed, as being like this thing that, you know, became part of the mass consciousness beyond the infosec community, and part of that was to do with the branding, and part of it was to do with its severity and the fact that the internet was you know broken for a little while, um, but I think there's value, and um, 
using you know you know using code words using metadata's to understand complex problems. Um, if you think about Spectre and Meltdown, um, those were two very very complex things to go talk about, and the, they were actually a sequence of problems that needed to be dealt with in both of them. And we do end up needing handles to these things. So you know, twenty one nails. Sure, uh, you know, that's an easy way of referring to the XM stuff. Um, so I, I think I think there is a difference between branding and 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 uh, just coming up with a useful handle and a yeah, moniker. Yeah, that, 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 that I agree. I I, I would say that most of these are branding. Like I'll give you an example: crime and, and bridge. Those actually have. Uh, an acronym that actually has a very long name for a very very valid attack term, which you know they happen to made it into a cool name. That I actually think it's very smart, very interesting. It you you get a name that it's cool, but there's actually you know something behind it. Uh, naming for naming, because the vulnerability is cool. Like yes, you have rights to brack. Awesome. You found something very cool, very difficult, complex, etc. Brag as much as you want. This is your five minutes of fame. I don't. I don't care. Like in the big scale of things, I don't care. I just. It's just me being an old fart at the end of the day. Like I'm like, yeah, well, whatever. Like the new kids are doing this. Like in my old days, we did it, right? Like, I don't think I'm that old, but I'm slowly becoming that old. Uh, I'll blame that. I mean, you know, when I turn forty, I blame it on the forties. You know what bothers me more is, um, and this is me being an old fart, is the um, almost Hollywoodification that we see in threat attribution. Because I've never read a single article about, you know, Fancy Bear without it going like Fancy Bear dot dot dot, widely believed to be this agency. Then they discuss the thing, and as I. I why why bother with the fancy bear if it's not it's clearly not useful because every time you tell me about the cool code word thing you then go on and explain where it is and who you believe it's attributable to like you know we get the same thing with apt numbered groups and stuff and maybe it's because those attributions change thinking out loud um so maybe you think it's you know one country one month and you think it's a different country the next but you believe the threat actors are the same. Maybe it's so that. Fancy bear can know. be a, a brown bear, or it can be a panda, or it can be something else. Uh, I, I more think that maybe maybe you can be fairly confident that it's, I don't know, the Russians one one month and then the using, the science, using the scientific method, you know, we presented with evidence that it's no longer them. You can say, well, we're still pretty sure it's this group, but uh, we now believe the geor- geographical yeah. mapping is different. Maybe, maybe that's the value to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that is that is true. I do find value in like uh, abstracting yourself, and because you don't know a hundred percent who a specific agency or group or criminal organization is actually behind it. I mean, that's mutable versus immutable handles, right? Like the purpose of of naming red actor groups is a mutable handle. The idea is that we aren't actually sure and we are willing to shift attribution. Uh, and it is a, I would say it is a disservice that the journalistic community does to us when they do what you describe, Rob, which is like imply that, of course, Fancy Bear is just absolutely a mapping to this, per- like this group. We know that it's them, except we don't. And two months from now, six months from now, we might change our minds. And the people who read that article aren't going to remember that. Uh, so, like, certainly the people who are in that world, at some level, do know the reason we call it Fancy Bear is because we're not sure. But, like, that nuance is lost. Uh, on the immu- like, immutable handle side, which is, like, branding your, uh, your vulnerabilities, I think that I, I was in Matthias's uh, old man house shaking my cane uh, around 2017, 2018, probably, where, like, it seemed like you couldn't turn around without getting hit by yet another branded vulnerability that had like an organized marketing campaign for it and a website and a logo. And that felt like it was a big problem. Um, now, in retrospect, I don't actually don't think it's a big problem, but like it was bothersome at the time. These days, I'm actually a big fan of branding vulnerabilities because human, uh, human memorable tags are extremely useful in conversation. Like when I talk about CVEs related to TLS, I do not remember a single one. 
Uh, actually, I remember one. So if I told you CVE 2014-0160, hey guys, which vulnerability am I talking about? That's Heartbleed. Yeah, that, yeah, that one's Heartbleed. But like, Heartbleed, Crime, Breach, Poodle, Lucky 13. Those are all TLS vulnerabilities that I can remember off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, yeah, because I, they're I, branded. I get it, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, like I said, like, I'm not against it. I'm just, I, I, I'm the first one to upset. I'm just being an old fart and complaining for the, for the sake of like change and complaining. I, I accepted the fact that, Hey, the industry is big enough and it's mainstream enough that these things, these things make sense for what you just said. And they also make sense. You know what? Cause it's mainstream enough that you gotta do PR. You, you, you gotta do You gotta be a showman. Like it's fine. Like this is how some people get recognized and they become, uh, you know, they, they actually ended up improving their own careers. So I'm like, okay, whatever, like do it. All right. And I, I agree with you. Like at the end of the day, it has usefulness, but Hey, I'm, I'm just an old fart. Uh, so I, I, let me rant about it. You always get to rant, Paul. Like I don't get to rant about anything. Like, let me rant about one thing. Okay. Fair, fair enough. I would say the next time you find a CVS S10, we'll name it Matthias rules and we'll move on. Moving along the. The other vulnerability when, when I started this conversation that I thought it was cool, it's actually kind of like a new type. Uh, I was reading the NCC group uh, blog post about the SAML XML injections. And in, in the beginning, I was like, yeah, whatever, XML injections. Like, And then I actually started reading a little bit more. I went into the details of vulnerability, when it actually applies, how it actually, you know, when you have a request and you send it to the IDP and you, you get it back. I was very skeptical to, to, to say the least when I started reading about it. But having dealt with this, type of vulnerabilities in, in general with like some vulnerabilities and uh, I immediately said like, okay, yeah, this is very useful. The attack opportunities uh, for actually, besides being the library being vulnerable, like the exploitability of this vulnerability, it's uh, much more limited to being vulnerable to it. Uh, as in uh, being able to successfully craft a response that actually is useful uh, to elevate privilege or to change something or to trick um, the the SP uh, into doing something. But nevertheless, I, I thought that totally deserve uh, a new type of uh, attack vector with its own name, as in SAML, XML injections. Uh, I think that potentially uh, a lot of back bounty people are going to have a lot of fun testing a lot of IDPs and, and SAML enable applications to, to the tech potential bugs here um i i applaud is this them. just I, i'm not familiar with the vulnerability at all i haven't read the ncc group article so is this just xml injection used against the, the parts of the saml protocol that yep okay but in in, in places in, in in some places where like you either uh injecting user controllable on something like an attribute as part of the sml uh which then gets use uh, in in part of the SAML response, so you can actually generate a SAML response that then gets signed and potentially encrypted right. by uh, with, with the correct thing. So you're not really injecting something that it will break if you have signature or encryption enabled. This would actually fly. The problem is where exactly this is being pasted and how much, I mean, assuming that the library is vulnerable, like where exactly is being pasted and can you actually use it to include some attribute, like saying, hey, like, you know, what are what is the level of this user? Is that an admin, right? Like, so the actual application that is consuming the response will effectively allow you to escalate privileges. That exploitability factor, these, uh, the article is honest enough to say that, hey, you know, that, that part is actually a lot more uh, difficult that all of the docs are aligned in order to actually this happen. But nevertheless, like, you guys know, like, I have a, a pass in uh, doing security for identity. So this is a very elegant and useful attack that that could certainly allow somebody who has a valid, um, uh, either can intercept a SAML request or has a valid, uh, is, is, has a valid user and wants to escalate privileges, uh, potentially could actually use as an attack vector. And, and you wouldn't be able to detect it besides uh, you know, literally fixing the vulnerability or, or trying to see or understand some of these attributes. Uh, but from the application perspective, probably it's just, you know, it's, it's a valid response 
you know, so it, it's, it's very interesting. And, and I thought that I was skeptical when I started reading about it, but when I was done with the article, I'm like, okay, good, amazing work. Uh, a lot of pretty cool uh, identity attacks have uh, come in the last couple of years from NCC. So, uh, you know, I, it looks like they're doing a, a pretty good job doing research. Uh, so I, I hope that they continue to do so and improve the security of these protocols. So I was going to say, I also have not read the article closely, so I'm curious if you can give me a little bit more detail in terms of what, what's going on with it. Like, as I currently understand it, like it's an XML injection attack, assuming basically naive interpolation into the XML. So yeah. like basically they're not doing like a C data escaping so that the parser actually will still parse it. Is that ultimately what ends up happening? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Like canonical. There's, there's some, oh, there's some, there's some attributes in the SAML request that SAML takes them out and paste them in the SAML response as part of the response in different parts. Those attributes, you can encode it in a way that then they will be decoded and injected. And you, I mean, it's clearly like an injection, right? Like you take something that is a string and you make it into part of quote unquote code, the XML, uh, when you actually, so it's. By no means. That's this is why I was skeptical. Like, this is an XML, XML injection. Like, who gives a shit, right? Like, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's an XML protocol. No shit. Uh, but when I start reading about it, I'm like, oh, okay. This this is in very specific use cases. This could be uh, an interesting uh, vulnerability or that has very uh, important consequences. Um, I had a, a an interesting talk with some of my buddies that are still work in the industry saying, hey, like, how are you? What is your state? Um, so it's, um, it was, it was, it was, like I said, I started a little bit skeptical when, when, when I was done reading it, I was like, okay, it's not as, and, and they they actually, what I like about the blog post is that they're very uh, truthful about what is vulnerable, what is exploitable, you know, they they don't they don't try to like oversell this bug or anything like that. It's very well written from a technical perspective, trying to describe uh, the consequences. So no, not a la consultant where oh my gosh, or like bug bounty, oh my gosh, like I found a cross scripting, your application is completely broken. It's a critical, pay me the highest amount of bug bounty, right? Like exactly not like that. So I honestly like when I read reports that are truthful to the technical statements, they state severity and impact very clearly and they, they actually explain the consequences of each step when it can be vulnerable when it can be exploitable uh, I, I just felt that it was a very well written um blog robert uh you actually share with us tinker twitter thread and i i was reading it early today in the morning when i was having breakfast and oh my god um it's uh, when I started reading, I was, I was, I thought it was, you know, him being burnt and, but it, I mean, please, I mean, you, you, you share with us, so, you know, feel free to talk about it. There's a security researcher and penetration tester that I follow on Twitter called uh, Tinkersec. And on the 30th of April, they posted a thread about the problems that they had been having with, with general cognition, it turned out to be a neurological disorder brought on by the experience they had uh, doing a significant amount of penetration testing in a short time. So this researcher says in their own words, I quite literally hacked so much for so long and without enough breaks that I turned all the glucose out of my brain, burned all the glucose out of my brain and gave myself seizures. Um, but what was interesting about this is that um, the, the researcher had a very long sustained effort. They describe a situation where the, their partner uh, had left and they were responsible financially for, for the household. Um, and because of this situation, they were doing their normal amount of work plus uh, any weekend projects and, and working late into the night pretty consistently. Now, one of the interesting things about that situation uh, is as a penetration tester, um, you're thinking, you know, literally outside the box. You're exploring the challenges of an unknown problem, right? Like we talk about, uh, you know, there are 
when we're doing penetration testing, things like, you know, blind SQL injection or whatever, these things where you have to guess and try and prompt the target system to hint back at you about a thing that may or may not be true. Um, it's not so simple as just running exploits or whatever. You know, you have to guess at why they're not working. Well, maybe there is a check on, I don't know, endianness or casing or encoding or looking for specific characters to or to allow or to disallow, right? But basically, every time you're going after a system, you're extrapolating out a huge tree of possibilities and then doing your best to iterate through this tree to try and uh, reach a goal. Um and this type of hyper-creative thinking, plus just the general um, cognitive wear and tear of trying to come up with these um, successful attacks, is one of the things that uh, really um, really was problematic for this researcher. So, you know, if we go, and now we can share the thread in the show notes, but um, they went and they, they, they managed to find a neurologist after a few false starts um, and went, you know, they had an MRI, an EEG, um, those things didn't come back with, with many problems and they describe later going on to, um, see some other specialists and were diagnosed with, um, FND, which if I find it in my notes is functional neurological disorder, or as they say, in short, they hacked too much, um, you know, we're all familiar right now, especially in this world of work from home, sort of COVID context, um, with the specter of burnout. But this seems to be a very acute condition that's kind of related to what we call burnout, right? I think anyone can burn out. I think people, particularly those who are engaged in very creative pursuits, could be more likely to suffer from the type of condition that uh, Tinkertech describes suffering from. And I just wanted to bring this up here and see what you guys thought. I know, Matthias, you've done a lot of penetration testing. So, you know, do you think this is a problem in the industry? And, you know, what's your personal experience? It is completely. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've been a pen, pen tester for, what, 15 years by now. I still own a security consultancy firm that has pen testing as one of their services. Um, I can tell you that I've seen a lot of people burn out. I mean, uh, it's, it's very common. Uh, you actually said it yourself, uh, being a pen tester is not only about vulnerabilities, it's actually about being creative. Like, how do you actually link these vulnerabilities to reach a goal? How do you actually sometimes come with exploiting functionalities that become vulnerable, allow you to, you know, find... It's not only about, oh, a specific vulnerability that you found. It's about, hey, like... I was able to take advantage of your system to an X, Y, and Z that put you know, on themselves are not vulnerabilities. But uh, so good pen testers have to be not only deeply thinking, but also thinking, you know, very creative. Um, it's, it's, it's a very different craft from doing code review. Uh, you could actually have a code reviewer that is excellent and it's not a good pen tester. And you can have a very excellent pen tester that's not really a good re- code reviewer, not because he cannot code review or he's not doesn't understand the languages. It's just because I think both uh, uh, areas within um, consulting require very different uh, set of uh, skills that you know if you have one of them you actually be but being creative uh, and, and being being able to think out of the box uh, I think is, is one of the requirements uh, when we used to hire I literally used to put in the uh, job descriptions that uh, you need to have the evil bit because uh, and by that I mean like you need to be either you know think about think out of the box think like an attacker think like a criminal. Uh, I always tell people that hey like cool vulnerabilities with names are for uh, conferences, but like real pen tester real attackers don't their their end goal is not to exploit with a cool vulnerability. The end goal is to maximize like effect report as many vulnerabilities and find as many paths to actually compromise your target. And sometimes the best vulnerabilities are the ones that are like the stupidest one because we da- because even a script kitty can actually do it. So the impact becomes even higher because it, they don't require a lot of knowledge to actually exploit them. Um, so I I can tell you that uh, I I've never been extremely burned out, but the constant constant switching. The requirement of like working, you know, 120 hours in a week because you have three engagements 
it, it's it's a very demanding feel. Uh, sometimes not really well paid. Uh, and mostly if you're you know uh, you don't have enough seniority, uh, you have a lot to learn. You you you're forced to learn a lot of new subjects and become an expert in very short amount of time. Which if you can live through that, it it teaches you how to learn. And you know you learn how to learn um, and very fast. Those are one of the benefits. But the bad part is like if you take it too much, if you don't find a balance between work and life, you're gonna end up like that. I've seen a lot of people ended up uh, in a in a bad situation, health related. I personally, when I was still in Argentina around 2009, 2010, I was working one day on a report and I couldn't see anymore. Uh, it ended up being that I had hidden farsight because I worked too much with the computers with too little light and, you know, hence why I still to this day wear glasses. Uh, uh, back then, I didn't know because I didn't need them. I was only happening when my muscles were getting tired, but it was mostly because it was just way too many hours in front of the screen. Uh, you know, my eyes were not that good. I was not eating too much carrots as my mom was telling me to do. Um, and, and I think some of the consequences were just, you know, part of my job. I, I luckily it wasn't nothing as serious as what Tinkersack is describing here, but it, the attribution is, yeah, like, you know, working a lot. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I was reading this and I felt it very close to home, uh, to some respect. So I, I mean, I honestly wish him the best recovery and tell him as much as he can to prioritize family. But at the end of the day, prioritizing family also means, you know, I have two kids and I realize the moment that I have them, that it also means understanding when you have to make sacrifices for them. And that includes working a lot in order to support them, but also make the sacrifices of reducing your workload to be with them and to don't completely collapse because they need you. So uh, being a parent, being a pen tester, it, I completely understand where he's coming from. He's, he's, uh, the, the things that he's writing about because they resonate and they feel a lot like home. I was not aware until you actually shared with me, but like they did um, sort of, uh, how can I say it? Um, they left me, you know, with kind of this feeling uh, throughout the morning, which I still have uh, because it just resonates a lot. And, and I wonder how many other people are suffering through this in the industry and they're not sharing with each other. Uh, they don't have, you know, like the hackers, we tend to be uh, lonely people, so they don't have anybody to rely on. So the fact that he was open to share it, I hope that it actually works in, in the benefit of allowing others to potentially are going through these difficult times to speak about it, find help and, and try to get better. I mean, sorry, I kind of, uh, it was kind of a rant, but uh, it just really resonated a lot. Moving along, um, I, I don't think I have any, a lot to say, but I, unless you guys want to talk about it, I just thought it was very cool, the, the one password secrets automation. I'm, I've been a supporter of this company from their very early days. I used to be a LastPass user and then migrated to OnePassword when LastPass was acquired. Um, and I, I'm just so happy that they're growing as a company, that they're providing new use cases. Uh, I think they actually have a great product. And, and when I see that they now they also support like secrets automation and they can actually um, not only, you know, everybody knows and, and uses OnePassword as sort of like a, uh, an end user, it's not really well placed uh, from a production perspective or like holding secrets. And so I, I felt that it was a very interesting addition to their feature set that I I really wish them well. And I, and I think it's a interesting field where they're getting into. Yeah, I mean, better secret automation and rotation is an unallied good for our industry. So let's. I'm I'm happy to see them enter it. I wish them the best of luck. Uh, I use them personally. Yeah, I mean, the the, the more plays, the better, right? Exactly. Like I use them personally. I don't. I, we don't. I don't use them professionally at this time. Who knows? Maybe in the future at some some place. Uh, but like, it cannot be a bad thing for more people to try and do a better job with this. Well, exactly. But I mean, I use them personally. If I and if I ever want to like launch something or automate anything of my services that I have, uh, I I will seriously consider actually using this feature out of them because I mean, I used to have to rely on. 
uh, sometimes on less than ideal methods because I mean I do not have like when I build something I don't need, do not need like a huge infrastructure or a PKI or anything like that so you ended up with like things that you hate yourself and probably will report yourself if you were editing your own software but um, having things like this even available to small uh, businesses I I just think it's great and and allows you not to have to have yet another solution you can bake it in in the end solution that you have for your employees already so i i just i just thought it was great i think it's so. pretty cool um because it it does help bridge this problem of, of um machine accounts and automation with with individual users i was just kind of looking now and some of the integrations they have are really interesting like native integrations for vault terraform kubernetes ansible like that's really neat like uh, it makes it much easier for me to yeah. do password management and credential management into a it, it lets me make life easier for developers which means they're more likely to make make the right choice yeah i was thinking about exactly that right when i was reading it i was like hey like probably reduces the friction because developers are already using this if they can actually use the same thing they're not going to try to like bypass the security feature because it's hard and makes their life more difficult so if you give them a I'm a big supporter of anything when I see that UX and security go the same way. I'm like, yeah, check mark, love it. You know, we need more of this. Um, so, okay, Doki. Um, talking about UX and security, I don't know if they are going the same way, but like uh, Google is mandating everybody to MFA, MFA for all. Yeah, so this is obviously a, a, a shift from their. Uh, historical approach here, right? Like Google added MFA, I'm not sure how long ago, but I actually looked at my account today and I added MFA to my Google account in July of 2011. Uh, so probably somewhere near that time. Uh, and in all that time, they've not mandated it. However, they, according to their latest blog post uh, around this, they're going to be adding MFA automatically, but actually only for the moment, only for accounts that are already set up such that this can happen. So like if you have a phone where you have the Google app logged in already or a variety of other scenarios, like you can apparently check to see what it looks like in the Google account security checkup. But if you are already capable of MFA through some of those two-step verification processes they have, then they are going to opt you into it automatically at some point soon, uh, which is aggressive, right? Like it's, it's making a, a unilateral change to a user's account. But it's also the sort of thing that I think is probably necessary as we move towards like a more secure future. And until we live in the world that I, I believe I mentioned last week, which is where all of us get to use FIDO2 with WebAuthn and platform authenticators, uh, anything that moves forward is still good. I, I, I love it. I mean, I, there's a lot of things that I criticize about Google, but like when they actually take these difficult business decisions, because it's going to take a hit. Uh, but they, they do it for the quote unquote safe of, you know, their own platform and, 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 and future. I, I, I understand the business consequences. I understand a lot of people are not going to be happy, but I just think it's the right thing. And I, and I salute them for, for pushing hard and, and understanding that even though this has an impact, the benefits of it are significant. Like I, I think this is significantly going to reduce phishing um that obviously depends on the mfa factor that you ended up using <laughs> but uh and if it's you know same chat you know the, the same channel you still have uh attacks are completely uh useful regardless of your mfa but um i, I just think this is this is very 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 useful and a step forward that i hope other companies mimic and, and make it mandatory um, I, I, I've seen this in a lot of the, uh, crypto, uh, wallets and providers that actually made, uh, MFA mandatory, even if you don't like it, they're like, Hey, I mean, they have SMS uh, MFA, which I'm not a big supporter of, of it. Like people that know me, they know that I hated it, but, uh, I, I still think that it's better than nothing. And the fact that like all of these providers they actually mandatorily require you to do it whether you like it or not I, I think it's a i think it's a right step in the right direction and of course i want a future like you described paul but i'm also not naive to the fact that it's going to take time 
and, and it's going to cost money. Uh, it's not going to be easy to migrate, but, you know, one step at a time, I'm more than happy that we actually go in, uh, in the right direction and not actually backwards. So I think we don't have a lot more topics, but uh, it's time for Paul's rant. Um, Paul, did you, can, can you tell me a little bit about like, you know, I, I want to buy tuna and I want to know its procedence. So I'm actually going to use a, a friend of mine told me about it. And I want to use blockchain tuna tracking because I can know where my tuna comes from. So, and, and I saw that to ask my crypto friend what he thinks about it. Yeah. So, so first I have to, once again, dispute that I ever agreed to rant in every single episode. So at some point here, I expect to hear a rant uh, from Rob about, I don't know, tea. Uh, but until that time, uh, sure. So the World Wildlife Fund partnered with uh, Consensus and a few others to, to build like a, a tracking system that you know the provenance of the tuna that you caught. The idea being that tuna is obviously a very valuable thing that is also overfished. And so having some idea of like where the fish was caught, what vessel caught it, the method in which they used, so that you have some idea that like you're cut using sustainable legal tuna that's not utilizing like press ganged labor or like other uh, like inhumane conditions. The way they attempt to accomplish this is like RFIDs and QR codes that get scanned in certain parts of the entire supply chain and then submitted to the blockchain and then magic. And so that's where I have my issue. A blockchain is a distributed, like decentralized ledger for confirming things. And the confirmations are based on a variety of potential things, but none of them involve validating the provenance of the data that's being added to it. So it's not an interesting use of blockchain to write information about fishing vessels into it, because the fishing vessels can just lie. So you might as well have a centralized database that doesn't destroy the earth by running itself. And then we can just talk about whether or not we trust the data flowing into that database. Now, if you believe the central actor is the, is the problem here, then I'm not entirely sure what to tell you because what we just described was a scenario where we're concerned about the conditions on the ships, not the conditions like where we're selling it. So like, if you want to solve this problem, blockchain is entirely the wrong solution. And it, as in fact, it is in almost every case. Like blockchain supply chains uh, solutions have never made any sense to me. They're always solved better by, the, by a centralized database. And it turns out that that centralized database will take one computer instead of, or, you know, maybe it's three if you really want some good redundancy, uh, instead of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, all of which are burning enough power and creating enough CO2 to measurably reduce our time on this planet. Sharing this with Paul, I was literally telling him, like, I, I wonder if, like, this amount of CO2 and global warming that is, blockchain is generating actually effectively will end up killing more tuna than the, you know, the bad fishermen that are incorrectly fishing this. And... I'm, I'm corrupted fishermen. I think they're probably going to find a way, even if we instrument it and control this, et cetera, et cetera. You can always have a front of the good guy that buys from the bad fishers and, you know, sells it as if they were his. So, I mean, dealing with this problem, it's, it's a human problem right. of corruption and trust that you cannot solve with computers. I, I think it's a cool idea from the people that try to do it. I'm like, I, 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 I do not think they're, thinking through the problem correctly, but like, I, I know where they're doing it and I don't have anything against that. I, I just feel that, like, uh, that I agree with you, Paul. Like, uh, I just find it very funny that nowadays it's cyber everything and blockchain everything. And, you know, it's one of those, uh, I think we can, we can potentially have Paul, uh, sorry, Robert give us a rant if we say zero trust everything. But um, uh, I don't know if, if he we'll, wants to we'll actually get like, tell the world his opinions of like, move, shift to the left and see your trust. I don't know. He was just criticizing shift to the left earlier in this call. Uh, but I, I suspect that we, we want to hear Rob's opinions on zero trust and how no one actually uses those terms right. But we should, we should save that for a future episode. That's your teaser. Uh, I'm fine with that. Let's do that. 
Okay, so it was great talking to you guys. I started as a cloudy day, now it's sunny. So maybe it's time for me to tell you guys goodbye and actually go out and try to be a person, not a geek, and go out to the <laughs> real world outside my house and have fun with my kids. That sounds like a good weekend. That sounds like an excellent plan. Yep. Yeah, make some more well, you Masados. Today and tomorrow. Why not, right? Until next time. Until next Bye, time. Bye, guys. See you. Bye.